If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The inhabitants of Sherburne then began shooting out of their windows at the parliamentarians. They poured out of their doors shouting, kill the roundhead dogs. Um, They attacked them with pikes and muskets and actually with scythes with which they attacked the parliamentarians' horses and tried to rip out their their bellies in the street. That was Professor Mark Stoyle describing how Sherborne's royalist townsfolk ambushed parliamentarian cavalrymen in the Civil War. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of these digital formats, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Now, before we move on to discuss the Civil War, we have a short advertisement break. From Sunday Times best-selling author David Gibbons comes a brand new adventure set in ancient Rome, telling an epic story of brotherhood, loyalty and bloodshed against the backdrop of the legendary siege. Destroy Carthage takes readers into a world of extraordinary military tactics and political intrigue that Rome's warriors and citizens used to cheat death. Inspired by Total War Rome 2, from the best-selling Total War PC game series, Destroy Carthage is the first in a brand new series of novels. Out now in hardback and digital from all good bookshops. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. In the summer of 1642, some 7,000 parliamentarians marched against the Dorset town of Sherborne to take what they refer to as the cradle of cavalierism in the west of England back under parliamentarian control. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, met Professor Mark Stoyle at Sherborne Old Castle, the site of two Civil War sieges, to find out more about this volatile period in the town's history. Right, so Mark, we're sitting in the ruins of Sherborne Castle, um, which were home to the Digby family. Um, who were the Digbys and who were they, did they support during the Civil War? Well, there's a, quite a curious story with the Digby family that um, before the Civil War actually broke out, um, it was felt uh, by a number of people that um, D- George Digby might actually um, be a, a supporter of the Parliament. But in the end, um, he sort of turned uh, to the King's side and he was seen by many of his sort of former friends um, as something as a tr- of a traitor, really, in oh. the run-up to the Civil War. Why did he... So he was quite high up in royalist um, camp, was he? Well, he became um, quite a a sort of a close advisor of the Mm. king. um, And and as a result, you know, he was sort of feared and distrusted by many of the parliamentarians. Okay, and the castle was besieged on on two separate occasions. That's right. Um, What what was so important about Sherborne and the castle that made the parliamentarians want to to take back control? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I think that the, the, the real importance of Sherborne is that it lies in the heart of quite a royalist area. Mm. And this was one of the first um, the first communities, really, in the southwest of England that actually declared itself for the king and against the parliament. Yeah. And because parliament at that time was very dominant in this region, this was seen as sort of rebellion uh, against the parliamentary forces. And they were keen to, to crush it, really, before this sort of um, outburst of royalism spread, if you like. So were they hoping to make maybe an example of Sherborne to other towns that might be the same? Possibly so, yeah. I think that at this stage, right at the beginning of the Civil War, it looked as if the whole of this part of England was going to come over to Parliament. So obviously they were anxious to make sure there shouldn't be any sort of outbursts of royalism. And I think you're right mm. that they were keen to make sure that, that here they stamped on royalism quickly yeah. before, if you like, the, the flame of support for the king was able to spread. 
how royalist was this was the town well it, it's a hard thing to say obviously because looking from from this time you mm. know back uh, you know almost 400 years it's really hard to be sure about the question of popular allegiances but all of the evidence suggests that Sherburne was probably one of the most royalist towns in the whole of the south of England mm. and we've got a number of very clear demonstrations of popular royalism here we know that large numbers of the local men joined the the king's army right. so it really does seem to have been a hotbed of support for King Charles and he made his western headquarters around this area, didn't he? Well, Charles himself at this time was was up in the north of England and moving down um, through the Midlands and Wales. Right. Um, but he sent a group of his supporters into the West Country in order to try and rally support. And after having failed dismally <laughs> to do so in Somerset, they retreated across the county border to right. here in Dorset. And this is where they first began to really manage to, to raise quite substantial numbers of ordinary men to support them. And at the time, um, what was the tide looking like? Who looked like they were going to be... I mean, had war actually broken out? Well, we're actually looking at this very interesting stage when we're just in the opening, um, the beginning months of the Civil War. Um, The King had just raised his standard um, at Nottingham um, uh, just a short time before uh, Sherburne becomes the centre of attention, really, in Mm. in the South West. And at this time, there was really um, very little evidence of other areas of the South West that seemed to be coming out for the King. Um, So, yes, this was the... uh, the first headquarters, if you like, of his local supporters in the West, where they actually began to, to garner a certain measure of popular support. And Parliament it didn't do half measures. Um, they sent a, uh, an army of about 7,000 men That's to right, the town. That's right, yeah, a huge um, force. What happened? Well, um, really, as, as soon as um, the parliamentarians initially were quite um, exultant in having driven the, the Royalist supporters out of Somerset, yeah. and I think they thought at that point that perhaps they'd dealt with the emergency in their area. But once they saw the Royalists had established themselves here in Sherburne Castle and were getting support from the townsfolk, mm. they thought, well, this is something we've really got to stamp on. So they raised troops from all over Somerset, Dorset and Devon and brought this huge force um, all the way to Sherburne to, well, as I say, to, to stamp on the Royalists as hard as they could. What were numbers, royalist numbers, looking like in the castle at the time? Were they all sort of holed up here waiting to be sieged? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously they were hoping not to yeah. be sieged, but, but their numbers were, were not that great. I mean, you know, probably just a couple of hundred in the castle and a few hundred more in the town with yeah. the support of some of the townsfolk. So it's very much, um, you know, a, a, a one, or it seems to be a one-sided battle, mm. a very large parliamentarian force against a very small royalist one. But the royalists seem to have had the advantage of perhaps a greater degree of military experience and perhaps some more commitment to their cause. The parliamentarian soldiers, although they were very numerous, Mm. um, they didn't have any sort of military experience, or at least a lot of them didn't. So Parliament failed to... On that attempt, yeah, they failed um, really in quite a humiliating manner. I think one of the problems was they expected the people of Sherburne itself to support them and almost mm. to let them into the town. Yeah, but in fact that didn't happen. So this large parliamentary army was sort of encamped in the fields roundabout with no shelter and obviously not very nice yeah. for them. And then once they actually met the first test of battle uh, and the parliamentary, uh, sorry, the royalist guns began to fire out and they saw one or two casualties beginning to occur, well, actually large numbers of the parliamentary soldiers simply took to their heels and ran away and as a result of that their commanders were forced to raise the siege. Is there anything about the position of the castle that helped as well, helped it to with, withstand the Yeah, I, I think, first of all, it's, it's a really strong position. It's mm. not going to be easy to take without large numbers of cannon. And then, as I say, the fact that the town was actually in alliance with the castle meant that whereas the royalists were, you know, cosy and well-sheltered, yeah. they had beds, they had roofs <laughs> and so forth, the parliamentarian soldiers were actually having to bivouac in the field, right. uh, not something they enjoyed.
What sort of time of year was that? Was it? It, it was in the summer, um, mm. so perhaps you know you might feel that that would have meant it was easier. But I think these were freshwater soldiers, and they just yeah. weren't used to this sort of thing. It's all quite new. Mm. Um, the second siege, three years later, in 1645, um, was actually led by General Fairfax yeah. himself. Um, that was quite a different story, wasn't it? Absolutely <laughs> different. I mean, by this stage, we're at the coming towards the end of the Civil War. Yeah. Um, both sides have got large numbers of experienced soldiers, so that sense of you know uh, novices if you like, that you had yeah. in 1642, doesn't apply anymore. And also, whereas at that time the parliamentarian force had been sort of scraped together from local levies, untrained, unexperienced, the new model army is a really powerful, formidable force. Yeah. And you're talking about, you know, well over 10,000 men camped in this area. Um, and really, the royalists were facing a very tough proposition. Yeah. And in particular, the new model army possesses a very powerful field train of artillery pieces. And it was always likely that that they were going to be able to simply uh, blow holes in the walls of Sherburn and take it that way. Yeah, and just looking out now from where we're sitting, mm. you can imagine the thousands of um, parliamentarians sort of ready to siege the castle. It must have been quite a formidable sight from within. I think it must have been pretty mm. frightening for them, really. And they mm. also knew that by this time, the tide of the war had turned against the king. His own main field army had been defeated at the Battle of Naseby a few months beforehand. Yeah. So um, it must have been pretty frightening for the Royalist defenders. They knew that their side by this time uh, had got the, you know, had, had lost the upper hand. Yeah. And they were now up against, you know, the strongest army um, that England had ever seen. Do you think it would have made any difference to the outcome of the, the Civil War if they hadn't been able to take Sherborne that second time? Well, I think Sherburne was a very powerful irritant to them. Mm. And it also possessed, of course, this, this great symbolic value because it was seen as the first centre of yeah. royalism in the west of England, um, the very cradle of cavalierism, yeah. as they put it. <laughs> I think it was particularly important to them to, yeah. to crush this royalist centre of resistance. And, of course, once that was done, um, there were several other advantages to them. It meant that there would be no um, royalist strongholds between them and London, which yeah. meant that they had clear lines of communication communication and also because there was quite a lot of support for the king in this area the royalist garrison here was encouraging the local clubmen who were sort of irregular soldiers that the parliament was quite worried about at this time so crushing the royalist garrison here at Sherborne would also take away the sort of comfort they were offering to the pro-royalist clubmen too. Okay so the club, there was actually a battle, wasn't there, between the parliamentarians and the clubmen? Is that in the town itself? Uh, no, that, that, that was actually, um, at this time, large numbers of ordinary men and some women too mm. rose across the south and west of England complaining against, against the soldiers of both sides right. who were plundering and taking their goods. There's been a lot of debate amongst historians about you know, what the clubmen were really doing. Mm. Some people see them as completely neutral, who just hated both sides equally. Others see them as having been, well, essentially against all all sorts of soldiers, but having a bit more of a preference towards yeah. royalist or parliamentarian, depending on what area they came from. And certainly the clubmen around uh, the Sherburne area um, do seem to have been infiltrated by royalist agents and to have right. had at least some leaning towards the king's side. So again, for that reason too, Parliament was quite keen to, to neutralise Sherburne. Yeah. I mean, um, Sherburne, like other towns mm. of the period, 
you know, you say it was it was fervently royalist. Yeah. What what made t- certain towns um, decide, you know, that it would come down on one side or the other? What sort of factors would they would be considered? Again, that's a really <laughs> really interesting question. It's one that I've spent you know my career really looking at for mm. years and years. I think there are all sorts of different factors, but to me at least, I would argue it's a sort of mixture of religious and cultural conservatism. Right. It's areas that are quite resistant to Puritan Reformation. That's to say, to sort of godly Protestantism. The most advanced forms of Protestantism, they're much more keen on the sort of traditional service, uh, the Book of Common Prayer, a rather more relaxed and traditional form of Anglicanism, if you like. Yeah. And at the same time, they're quite wedded to their traditional customs, the Maypoles, the Church Ales, all the sort yeah. of the Merry England kind of things, if you <laughs> yeah. like, uh, and really not at all keen to embrace Puritanism, which they see as almost stamping on, on their sort of preferred form of religion and culture. And they see the king, I think, as the defender of that kind of English religion and culture and Parliament as the sort of um, uh, assailant or attacker of those kind of views. Right. So it wasn't necessarily Charles himself, it was what he stood for and exactly. what he represented. I would say it is that. Mm. I mean, you know, some historians have argued that the influence of the Digbys was important. Obviously, they were the biggest local landowners. Yeah. A number of their tenants were nearby. It may well be that they were able to exert a certain degree of influence as well. But no, I think you're right, Charlie. I, I would agree that it's it's not so much a sort of a blind loyalty to mm. the king or to the Digbys, and it's much more seeing the king as the protector of the kind of religious and cultural traditions that, that they respected and admired. Yeah. That's interesting because I think, I think sometimes it's easy to see them, to see people affiliating themselves to either side because of particular people perhaps or yeah. for the king. Yeah. But it, it, did it sort of come down to put their own, you know, much smaller scale personal lives and what, you know, what what they could get out of it really I think so I mean again the traditional line that would have been you know pushed 50 years ago was that mm. ordinary men and women didn't really care they didn't yeah. really understand about the issues they were told what to do effectively by their social superiors so if the Digby's had said turn out for the king they would all just yeah, um, doff, doff their, their caps, caps and do it <laughs> but I, I think really the true picture is much more complex mm. and we can see in a number of areas of the country when um, pro-royalist or pro-parliamentarian gentry try and raise their tenants sometimes they absolutely refuse to mm. obey them they, they they actually chase them out of town in several <laughs> yeah. villages in the West Country. So, no, I think it's got a lot more to do with the, the preferences of ordinary people. Yeah. And, yes, if the local gentleman takes the same view that they do, they'll be more than happy to turn out in his defence. But yeah. if he wants to push them in a way that they're not happy with, there's a lot of evidence of them refusing, really, to go along that route. Yeah. And how do events in Sherborne, how were they reflected elsewhere in the country at the time? What was happening um, the, for the second siege? Well, by that time, we've got to the stage that, that really the king is in a pretty awkward position. Mm. Um, he's lost control of big tracts of the south of England and the Midlands, and he's really reduced to his sort of key core areas, if you like, um, which are Wales and Cornwall, which mm-hmm. had always been very strongly royalist. Um, some parts of the West Country further west from here, Devon, West Dorset, West Somerset, and um, the area around Oxford, which was, of course, his headquarters and his capital during the Civil War. But certainly in most other areas of the country by this time that the parliamentarians are dominant. Yeah. And local, I mean, nearby Dorchester and Lyme Regis, they were quite strongly parliamentarian, yeah, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so would, it be, would men have been raised from those towns to come and, and siege? So it would have been sort of almost neighbour against... 
neighbouring town against neighbouring town, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very interesting at the beginning of the Civil War here in Dorset, um, we have a number of letters written from people in Dorchester mm. um, sort of saying, we here in Dorchester are doing all our best for Parliament, we're raising lots of troops yeah. and we're bringing in people to assist, but, you know, the malignant townsfolk of Sherburn are, you know, holding out for the King, refusing to do what Parliament tells them. So, yeah, there's a lot of bitterness and mm. local rivalry. Um, even within uh, an individual county, uh, towns had very sort of different uh, preferences Differences and yeah. perspectives, I think. So it really did rip the, the country apart. Really. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So um, counties were divided. Um, and although, I've, as I've said, in some areas there were sort of particular towns, villages, parishes that would go more for one side than the other, mm. there was almost always somebody within an individual parish yeah. who wouldn't go along with that. So, yeah, all English communities really are, are torn apart by the Civil War. Right. So what actually happened during the siege? How, did it, how long did the castle hold out um, well, during the second siege, it didn't hold out for very long. No. Um, although the royalists were very determined, you know, they were sort of courageous individuals, um, it was pretty one-sided. Mm. Um, and as I've said, the parliamentarians had these huge siege pieces and also great superiority in numbers. So, in fact, this um, second siege lasted for less than two weeks in the end yeah. uh, before the royalists were sort of, well, forced to surrender after having large parts of the, the stronghold battered down around mm. their ears. And was it that... That ruined, you know, has caused the ruins that we're sitting in today? Well, not quite, because in fact, uh, what we can see today is really a legacy of the parliamentarians having slighted the castle, which is a term really meaning demolished or razed to the ground. Right. Because Sherburn had been such a centre of royalist resistance to them, and because, to be honest, they had quite a degree of animus against it as a mm. result, um, soon after the castle was captured, uh, Parliament itself ordered that it should be slighted, uh, rendered indefensible so it could never again be a centre of royalist resistance to Parliament's cause. So rather than taking it on themselves and making it a stronghold of parliamentarians, they chose to destroy it completely. Yeah. And I think, again, mm. that may reflect the fact they knew that it was in a sort of a centre of, of royalist sympathy. Um, it was really good for them to get rid of it and make yeah. sure that it could never be used by the local royalists again. That's quite a message as well, isn't it, to put out... Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, still today, I think, you know, as we see this sort of tumble of ruins, it still carries a sort of message of Parliament's power and its determination uh, to really sort of domi dominate yeah. um, this area of local royalist sympathy. So Charles I mm. in 1649 was executed. Yes. Um, what happened to Sherburn after that? Well, um, what seems to have happened is that despite the execution of the king, um, Sherburn, like many other sort of pro-royalist areas, um, it doesn't just sort of roll under it. It, mm. it sort of, it remains a sort of centre of disaffection um, to parliamentarian rule. Right. The parliamentarians remain quite anxious about Sherburn, quite apprehensive on it. They, they keep <laughs> an eye on it. Yeah. And on several occasions when sort of plots and um, insurrections are planned in the West Country, it's to Sherburn that royalist activists look for support and it's also to Sherburn that Parliament looks to make sure that nothing untoward does happen there. Right. So it's a time of a time of quiet um, in Sherburn, but a sort of quavering quiet, grumbling, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word to use, <laughs> I think, sort of grumbling resentment, probably, yeah. yeah. And did, did Cromwell place any sort of key parliamentarians in the town to keep an eye on things? Um, Again, I'm not really sure about no. that. Um, I think that with the castle, if you like, neutralised, it yeah. was unlikely that, that a town, you know, that the towns themselves were going to be able to resist right. the strength of the new model army. So, no, as far as I know, there was no parliamentary garrison here. I'm not sure about that, no. but I don't think there was. Right. Um, so what sort of sources do we have? You've mentioned some quite, in your piece, you mentioned some, some lovely quotes yeah. um, that, that parliamentarians have sort of, 
um, sort of threw against the town. Yeah. Um, where are these coming from? Where do these? Well, I mean, one of the lovely things about about uh, Sherburn Civil War history is that we do have so many wonderful sort mm. of primary sources, and quite a lot of the material that I've drawn on today um, is taken from the news pamphlets that were published at the right. time. And some of these were sort of one-off pamphlets that were just um, written to to tell people about a particular event. Mm. So obviously, the siege of Sherburn attracted a great deal of attention, yeah. uh, and most of those were printed in in London. And um, there are also regular news pamphlets, what were like almost the first English newspapers or diurnals, which were published on a, a weekly or a fortnightly basis. And they too had a lot of information about what was going on all over the country and here mm. in Sherbourne as in other places. And there are also several sermons that were preached by parliamentarian right. ministers. And we've got a particularly good one by um, an Exeter man called John Bond, who was a fierce Puritan. <laughs> and it was him who, who coined this term of Sherbourne as the cradle of cavalierism and he also called it uh, the first western nest of the cockatrice's eggs uh, which is a reference to Sherman as like a cradle of Catholicism and popery where what he saw as the the evil sort of eggs of Catholicism had hatched and brought their their cavalier brood out upon the land so yeah we've got some wonderful very powerful language they obviously had quite a lot of fear and resentment towards the the town absolutely yeah and I I think there is a sort of sense of bitterness Mm. that where Dorset contains very godly towns like Lyme and Dorchester, it also contains, you know, towns like Sherburne and Blandford, which are seen as, as very pro-royalist and almost as treacherous. And on one particular occasion, uh, when the townsfolk of Sherburne attack uh, a party of parliamentarian horsemen, um, you know, they are uh, really, really sort of roasted in the parliamentary press that refers to them as the malignants of Sherburne, uh, you know, the sort of the traitors of Sherburne. So there's a great deal of vitriol in many of these sources, mm. yes. So between the two sieges, there mm. was an occasion when um, the Sherbourne townspeople turned on parliamentarian parliamentarian forces. What what happened there? Well, this is a particularly interesting story. And again, I think it sort of underscores the royalism of Sherburne. Um, At this stage, it's still in the early early part of the Civil War. Mm. Most of this area is secured for Parliament and the castle also, they'd kicked out the royalist garrison (laughs) by then. So they they felt fairly well in control. But there was a a rumour going around that the castle was about to be seized again by royalist sympathisers. So a party of parliamentarian cavalrymen were sent to seize the castle. Um, and they arrived outside Sherburne um, and they made their way right into the, the heart of the town yeah. um, and asked the townsfolk if they could shelter there for the night and they were told they could. Um, but as they were coming in, one of them noted um, a bell ringing out and they said, "What?" they asked one of the townsmen, what's that bell ringing for? And he said, mm. oh, it's just the eight o'clock bell. <laughs> but once the parliamentarians arrived at the centre of the town in the marketplace, uh, they were suddenly challenged by a group of armed men um, who, and, and when they said, who are you for? Uh, um, they said, we're for the king against the Parliament. And at this there was then um, a a sudden uh, flurry of rifle fire and the inhabitants of Sherbourne then began shooting out of their windows at the parliamentarians. They poured out of their doors shouting, kill the roundhead (gasps) dogs. Um, They attacked them with pikes and muskets and actually with scythes with which they attacked the parliamentarians' horses and tried to sort of rip out their their bellies in the street. Mm. Um, And as a result of this sort of ambush, the parliamentarians were driven out of the town. Um, and they were infuriated by this, of course. Mm. Um, and as you can imagine, some of them sort of sought revenge. At the time, some of the parliamentarian soldiers actually set lights to the inhabitants' houses. Um, so some of the houses were burnt down. And then within a few days, the parliamentarians um, raised a large numbers of soldiers, came back against the town and actually took it uh, and drove the inhabitants or the royalist inhabitants out. 
And were there any punishments as a result of that? Yeah, I mean, because of this act of treachery, as the mm. parliamentarians deemed it, they took quite a severe revenge on the people of Sherburn. Um, we're told that they pillaged all of their houses, uh, they took away as much goods as they could carry, uh, they arrested one or two of the most prominent townsmen, and as they rode out of the town again, taking all their pillage with them, uh, we're told that they actually took down the town bell, which had been <laughs> rung, yeah, to raise the town, and took it away with them, so yeah. it could never be used to raise the townsmen against them again. Gosh, I mean, that's either a very brave move or a very foolish move on the, town, the part of the town's fate. Yeah. What do you think made them do it? Was it, do you think it was, was it pre-planned or was it just a spur of the moment, you know, all that kind of resentment that's been boiling underneath, yeah. you know, simmering over the last few years? Again, it's a difficult question. I mean, I think you're right, though, that it, it was quite foolhardy. Mm. There aren't many towns um, in the Civil War, particularly undefended ones like Sherburn, that are sort of brave or foolish yeah. enough, you know, to attack soldiers in their midst. So I think it, it does show, again, this the royalism of the town. Whether or not it was pre-planned is hard to say, mm. but the fact that the bell was rung out, the fact there was a group of soldiers waiting, the fact that everyone rushed to their their windows i think it probably had been planned i think yeah. they knew the right they had they, arms as well didn't they exactly ready? their arms were ready i mm. think they knew the parliamentarians were coming and they thought well this is a relatively small body perhaps we're strong enough in ourselves yeah. to repel them and of course you know they were probably hoping for royalist reinforcement for elsewhere yeah. because at this time the royalists in oxford were again planning to send troops to sherburn hoping to rally yeah. uh, local people to the king's cause here again but that didn't happen in the end? Not on that occasion. No. Although um, the people of uh, Sherburn would have been pleased because just a few months after the ambush and mm -hmm. then the punishment which followed, um, royalist forces did sweep into this area, uh, took control of it again. And it's that, it was at that time that they were able to re-establish their garrison here in the castle. You, we've mentioned that the period when Cromwell was in charge of the country. Mm. Um, when Charles II was restored to the yeah. throne, I'm guessing that was a great cause for celebration in the town. Yeah. How was it received? What did people do? Well, we have this wonderful report of, of what happened here in Sherburn when, when King Charles II was, was proclaimed after mm. the restoration of the monarchy. And it really does seem to have been a quite, um, quite stupendous occasion. We're told that so many people flocked in from the surrounding countryside that they couldn't actually fit into the town Gosh. and they had to stand outside. Yeah. Um, and the townsfolk themselves seem to have celebrated to the max. We're told that the, the streets were strewn uh, with flowers and with rushes. Um, we're told that the, the men of the town paraded in arms um, and that the maidens of the town, the young unmarried women, they actually trooped through the town, um, about above a hundred of them, um, almost in sort of military uh, uh, sort of formation. They were led by a woman beating a drum and all of them wore sort of white celebratory waistcoats. And we're told that this was done to show that, you know, the women of Sherburn could show their loyalty just yeah. as well as the young men could. So everybody seems to have got involved. Um, there were bonfires, uh, the, ca the fountain at the middle of the, the town ran with wine, there was bread laid out in the streets free for everyone to, sure. to eat. And then at the end of the day, uh, not only was an effigy of Cromwell sort of torn to pieces <laughs> and then strung up from a gibbet, uh, but they also lit great bonfires on the hills that we can see here around the town. Mm. And we're told that these bonfires could be seen all over neighbouring Dorset and Somerset oh, cool. to show, you know, the, the, the elation really of the townsfolk yeah. at the restoration of the monarchy. I think it is a sort of, it's a kind of celebration of, you know, that, that they won out against yeah. their local enemy. Eventually. Yeah, mm. eventually, yeah. That was Professor Mark Stoyle of the University of Southampton. 
Mark's latest book is The Black Legend of Prince Rupert's Dog, Witchcraft and Propaganda During the English Civil War, and that's published by the University of Exeter Press. You can read his feature on Sherborne's role in the Civil War in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is out now. And also in our September issue, we have articles about Waterloo, medieval letter writing, Edward III, vampire attacks and the Battle of Flodden. And if you happen to have an iPad, you'll be able to enjoy an interactive version of the Flodden article featuring a series of maps of the battle and video and audio commentary from historian George Goodwin. You can find the BBC History magazine iPad app at the newsstand. And that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we might even read your message out in a future episode. And you can follow us on Twitter at History Extra. You can like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find history news, blogs, image galleries, quizzes and more. And you'll also get your chance to have your say on some of the hottest historical topics. In next week's podcast, we'll be joined by Tom Holland to talk about his new translation of Herodotus. Plus, a couple of notable historians will be discussing their favourite books with us. Do join us for that. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.